All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'll give everyone just a second to make their way back to their seats, the seats that you brought to the outdoor service. Welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you all worshiping with us, to hear God's word together, to celebrate outside, uh, like Dan said, for us to be able to gather as the church of God to celebrate the gospel and all that he has done in us and through us and the work of Christ on the cross, man. I am just, I'm humbled to come together like this week in and week out and to worship God with you. So thanks for joining us. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, we'll be there in just a moment, but I have an announcement, uh, one more announcement before we get into this morning's text. Uh, next week, uh, we are going to uh, not have the kids go down, well, actually, we're going to have them go down stairs right away at the beginning of service because it is Friends Day, and we're going to probably need to make a little bit of room in the auditorium right away. Um, and so next week, feel free to, I think we lost some speakers. Did we lose a speaker? No? Okay. Actually, it's in the monitors pretty loud. You could probably take it out of the monitors. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so embarrassing. Uh, so, yeah, so next week, uh, feel free to keep uh, bring the kids right downstairs right away. But I will say this, okay? I know that there are some parents in here where that is a huge philosophical element for your family. To have kids in worship with you, you love it. And so when we brought that back, you were so excited for that. And I just want to give you guys permission. If that is something that you are trying to instill in your family and try to model that for your kids and to have them in worship during worship with us, it's always open to you. It's always available to you to have your kids with you in worship or in service altogether. It is totally fine. And so um, even though next week we'll be checking the kids in right away downstairs and maybe moving forward into the fall, depending on how uh, the space works out in the auditorium moving forward, um, feel, we'll, we'll take them downstairs right away. But like I said, feel free. If, if that is something that's important to you in your family, have them be together as a family. Worship God. Hear his word together. Talk about it around your dinner table. That is completely, completely fine. So uh, last week, we took a break from the Gospel of John uh, for our Baptism Sunday, and we did a little bit of a different service where we were able to share some of the stories of God in our lives, some of the testimonies that were shared. And I don't know about you, but I was amazingly encouraged. It blew me away. Like, there were tears flowing. It was good to hear what God has done in the life of of his church. And so we may do that more, uh, maybe periodically throughout the year. We'll do a service like that once in a while. And if you would love to share your testimony, if you'd like to tell the church, testify to what Christ has done in you and through you and for you, talk to me. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our leaders, and uh, we'll get you plugged in for one of those uh, testimony services uh, in the near future. All right, John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 13, if you have your Bible. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm going to pull it up on my phone here for a second, and I'm going to read John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says this. <clears throat> verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, uh, excuse me, about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's pray. And uh, as I pray, I want you to pray. I want you to actively pray in this moment. Okay? A lot of times in church, we're just we're real passive. We just sit back. We just listen. We just kind of take and consume. But God has something for you in this service today. Are you ready? Is your heart ready? Have you engaged him yet this morning? And so as we pray, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, open your eyes, open your ears to hear what he has for you in his text today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace over us. We thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you, God, as we've sang about, as Dan talked about, God, how you pursue us. God, that there are some people in this room right now that are just downright in rebellion towards you. They're running from you. God, I pray that you and your mercy would grab a hold of their heart again today. God, that they would see the magnitude of your love, that they would see your love for them, and God, that they would turn and return home to you. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see you, that we would behold you, that we would cherish you, that we would have joy in serving you. And so, God, today, move in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text talks about, says that now Jesus is in Galilee. And uh, that is north of Judea, and it's north of Samaria. So I, I brought up a little map. I don't know if we have it. Do we have it? A little bit of a map here, just to show you exactly where he is. So you have Judea, which is down kind of in the south. Jerusalem is there. Then above that is Samaria. Remember the woman at the well, the town of Sychar in Samaria, right? And a lot of times... Jews tried to, to, uh, tried to avoid that area. Well, now we're north of that in Galilee. Jesus is going around there, and his brothers are encouraging him to go back to Judea, back down towards Jerusalem, and make himself known at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles in some of your scriptures it says. Now, Given some of the time markers and some of the things that have been mentioned in our text today, the schedule of events, of things that are happening, we're about six months out after the feeding of the 5,000, just so you know. Okay, we're only a couple chapters away, but we're about six months have passed since the feeding of the 5,000. And the thing about the Jewish culture, I wish we did this more, actually. I wish we did more things to commemorate and to remember what God has done in our life. In Jewish culture, feasts were, it was everything. And feasts always remembered something that God had done. What the magnitude of God, that he was with his people, that he was for his people, that he rescued his people. And the Feast of Booths was a time to commemorate and remember what God had done for Israel. Um, and in particular, in their win uh, wilderness wanderings. So while they wandered the wilderness, they dwelt in booths. 
Or, or even the tabernacle of God was a tent, right? And so to commemorate and to remember what God had done while they were wandering in the wilderness, oftentimes the Jewish people would set up tents or they would set up booths. They would make huts out of branches. Even to this day, I've heard that there are Jews around the world that will set up during the time, during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, that they will set up, even on their like rooftops, they will set up a little bit of a booth to remember and to celebrate what God has done. This is the third of the big Jewish festivals. It happens right around harvest time. We're going into fall now. I don't know about you, but I looked out my back window the other day, and there were leaves falling from a tree in my neighbor's yard, and I almost cried. I said to myself, where did summer go? Okay, harvest is going to be here soon. And this, uh, this feast, this Feast of Tabernacles, happened right around harvest. It lasted for eight days, and like I said, the Jews, they would actually, some of them would leave their homes, and they would live in these huts made of tree branches. It was a time of remembering of what God had did, what God had done while they were wandering in the wilderness. And in our text today, in verse 5, there's something a little bit shocking. It says that his brothers did not believe him, right? His brothers were encouraging him, go back to Judea, make yourself known. No one does these things in secret if they want to be known. So go back to where, um, the, basically the center of all life, the center of culture. When you go back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, back to the center of, uh, of all their festivals, where the temple is, make yourself known to the world. Have you ever had someone close to you not believe in you? It's really unsettling, isn't it? It's really kind of disappointing. Um, I have the awesome privilege and opportunity a lot of times to counsel couples uh, in my job. And I will just say this. Husbands and wives, you have the amazing ability to build up your spouse like no one else. And you also have the amazing ability to tear down your spouse like no one else. I've watched husbands who are generally strong men crumble and lead so poorly. And part of, it, part of the reason is, is that they have a spouse who is not believing in them, not building them up, not encouraging them daily, but tearing them down, constantly pointing out their flaws, and conversely, vice versa. I've seen wives crumble because a husband doesn't love like Jesus loved the church. We have the amazing ability to build up our spouse, believe in them, encourage them. Well, Jesus had people in his life too that didn't believe in him. People who were close to him. His brothers, his own brothers. Do you realize that Jesus had brothers? Sometimes that, pe that shocks people. Matthew uh, chapter 13 actually lists off James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not that Judas, a different Judas. As the brothers of Jesus. And that it also says that he had some sisters. I think sometimes we don't understand that fully, that Jesus actually had siblings born after him. Talk about your pressure to live up to your big brother. Could you imagine having Jesus as a big brother? See, what baffles me is you have these brothers who grew up with Jesus. Now they've seen him do miracles. And our text says that they didn't believe in him. And I look at it and I go, okay, well, they're encouraging him to go back to Jerusalem, to go back into Judea, 
during the Feast of Booths to make himself known, they must have believed in his miracles. They must have believed in his power. They must have believed that he could do amazing things. And thus, if he was going to do amazing works and miracles, it seems fitting to do it in front of a crowd. His own brothers didn't understand. They didn't believe in who he truly was. Or more accurately, what Jesus truly came to do. Jesus didn't come just to flex some power. He didn't come to just, um, to just put on a show, as we talked about. Like the crowds were coming to him. Their bellies were filled with those fish and those loaves. But yet even in them, their believing fell short because they just saw what he could do and not truly who he was. His brothers thought his miracles were just a sign of power, and they were to some extent. They wanted him to use his miracles to gain a crowd and to gain a following, to gain some popularity and to show some power and to probably eventually overflow, excuse me, overthrow the rule of Rome. They thought his glory was mainly or even only displayed in the miracles that he did. As if the miracles were the pinnacle of his glory displayed. That they were the sole purpose of attracting a crowd, gaining popularity and power, so that he could once rule and reign instead of Rome. Not realizing that he's been ruling and reigning ever since in the beginning. As we've already said, his works, his miracles, there's a reason that they're called signs, right? Because they point to something else. These wonders, these seemingly uh, crazy breaking of the laws of nature, there's a different, there's a bigger, there's a deeper meaning to them. It's bigger than, wow, this man is awesome. They point to spiritual and eternal realities that ultimately will be satisfied and completed in him in the most glorious of works that he will do, and that is going to the cross, fulfilling his purpose and his mission for putting on flesh and dwelling among us. To go to the cross and be the spotless lamb of God that would take away our sins and thus make us right with God, that's why he came not to just feed some people some fish and some loaves, not to just go to a man on the Sabbath day who's been paralyzed for 38 years and just say, pick up your bed and walk, just so people would say, wow, look at that power. But all of it is pointing to what Christ ultimately would do in going to the cross, where the, he would redeem and restore mankind. We were once at odds with God, enemies of God, but because of Jesus, his righteousness, Jesus, his blood, his atonement, his covering, making us right, we can now stand before a holy God. His brothers didn't truly believe do not get caught up in this same unbelief. It's sneaky. It's a sneaky form of unbelief. Seeing his power, wanting him to show up, wanting him to show off. Just like his brothers, wanting him to go to Jerusalem and gain a crowd during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where the temple is. That's where the important people are. That's where the leaders, the teachers of the law are. 
If he wants to be known by the world, go to the center of it all. And they want him to do it because they don't truly believe. Finish this phrase for me, okay? Timing is... Wow, you guys did not miss a beat. Timing is everything, right? To be at the right place at the right time. I, Josh Davidson is often at the right place at the right time. You don't understand how many times this guy texts me that he runs into some celebrity or some sports star. He's always at the right place at the right time. We've got some friends, too, that have, like, they just have this canny, uncanny ability to be at the right place at the right Have you ever been at the wrong place at the wrong time? Right? Maybe, like, a really unfortunate car accident or something like that. Like, you're just like, ah, just another half a second. I would have been through that intersection. Because timing is everything. Actually, in music, I'm a bit of a musician, and timing is so important. You could be playing all the right notes, playing in the same key, but if you're not playing in the right time, it's going to sound awful. Let's read our text again. John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So his brothers, the ones who didn't believe in him, they didn't truly understand who he was and what he was doing, what he had come to do. They wanted him to go back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, back to the Feast of Tabernacles, where everyone would be, to show his disciples the works that he has done, to perform miracles and to wow, to wow the crowds, to win over the crowds. But it wasn't time yet. It wasn't his time, the appointed time when he would die. Oftentimes when you read in Scripture, when he talks, when Jesus talks about his time coming or that his hour has not arrived, oftentimes he's pointing to the time when he would go to the cross and die for us. And it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time to go public, to be in that public arena, to do what his brothers were proposing. The timing of God, okay, this is something to understand. A lot of times, the will of God can be a little confusing to us sometimes, to understand what God wants us to do when he wants us to do it. And sometimes I think that's, we just make it way more complicated than what it is. Like, there's plenty in Scripture for us to do. And if we would just do what the Scriptures do, tell us to do, we'd be right there. <laughs> We think of it as like this golden nugget of whatever. But to understand the timing of God is a whole other element to his will. To do what he's called us to do, but to also do it specifically in the timing that he's called us to do it. I was listening to a sermon by David Gutzik over the last couple of weeks, and he said this, God's timing is an important expression of his will. You understand, like, doing something, doing something that God has commanded you to do, but not doing it when he tells you to do it, pretty much disobedience, right? doesn't really matter then. Doing something that God told you to do, but it's like I remember growing up. My dad would have me do chores around the house. Uh, a lot of time it was cutting grass. And I remember, especially when I became a teenager, I wasn't really rebellious, but I was, well, I was rebellious. Let's just say it. And... Because I got a little freedom. Like once I got my license and I had friends and I could go out with my friends or this or that, my dad would be like, hey, I need that grass cut. Or, hey, I need this done. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. Yeah, 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 I'll get to it. 
And I can remember specific times where I just utterly forgot. I meant to. I had good intentions to. But my dad asked me to do something. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll do it when I get to it. I'll do it when I have time. I'll do it when, you know. And when I'm a teenager, there was nothing more important than doing what my dad asked me to do. I thought it was at that time. But there wasn't anything more important. And I put it off, and then I'd ultimately forget. I think about, like, in my own life with God. I've had specific opportunities where I know that God is telling me to talk to that person about the gospel or to ask if I could pray with them about something. I don't know, sometimes I'm nervous. Even being in front of people all the time, even being somewhat of a people person, I don't know if it's just my rebellious heart, probably just my rebellious heart, or if it's just nerves or fear or whatever it is, but I won't do it in the timing that God has me do it, and ultimately I end up just disobeying him. God's timing and God's will are so closely connected What I want to be, and I've said this before, I want us to be so consumed with the will of God, not just like reluctantly, like a a sulky teenager like I once was, reluctantly saying, yeah, God, I'll do it because you told me to do it. But that I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his will and his plans are so much higher and greater and deeper and it's all pointing toward his, towards his glory. And because I've been called out of darkness into the light of Christ, because I've been called out, I was once dead, but he has made me alive. I am happy to do the will of God in the timing of God. I don't know if that resonates with any of you, but that's where my heart wants to be. I want to be so consumed and submitted to the timing of God. To do the thing that God wants me to do, but to do it when he wants me to do it. That can be a tough thing for us. To understand the timing of God. There's, there's good folks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a couple of examples right now. And, and, I'm, and I know that there are folks that there are probably examples in this room, situations that I know of, and just know that I'm not specifically talking to you necessarily. All right? But there's some of us in this room, like, we got to trust the timing of God when it comes to a spouse. There's some of you young people in this room that you're like, ah, I'm feeling it. I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. I need a husband. I need a wife. And it gets tough to trust God's timing or even career. Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Do I take this promotion? Where does God have me in trusting his timing with it all? Children. Trusting God in that. When to have children. Like, to wait back and trust God in it. To hear his voice and to move when he calls us. Ministry. When to engage those moments personally, one-on-one. When to engage someone. To hear the voice of the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us. Oftentimes, I think we think very little of the timing of it all. When opportunity knocks, we just go for it often especially if it's lucrative, especially if it benefits us. The time is always now for us. But if our goal, for those of us who have been saved by Jesus, if our goal is the will of God, to hear the voice of God, to hear the Holy Spirit of God leading us in those moments, to surrender to him, there's such joy in doing the will of God. I was having a conversation, actually, with Justin uh, a couple weeks ago. 
after an outdoor service like this. And uh, we were just talking about doing God's will. We were talking about obeying the scriptures. And there's so many times where we just think it's like this um, sad self-denial. That's the existence of a Christian. It's just this sad, I got to go through life just saying no to me. I got to say no to my flesh. I can't do all the fun things that all the world gets to do because we just say no to ourselves. But when you behold Jesus, when you see him in his glory, when you see the magnitude of the one who's called you out of darkness and into his light, when you see fully the one who has raised you from the dead and has called you into a life of joy and peace and happiness in this life, but forget this life, beyond this life. Like I said, man, I know that it's not, his miracles aren't just about the now. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I know it wasn't just about Lazarus coming back to life because Lazarus is not with us today. He died again. Him raising Lazarus from the dead was a picture of our eternal hope, of our eternal home. When he restores a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, that's not just to give that guy a few more years on earth that he can jump around and dance. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's great. But it's a picture of the restorative power of Christ in our souls that one day we will be whole before a God. So if you are full of ailments in this place, anybody got some ailments? Anybody like back is a little sore when you wake up. Like, I used to work out and wake up sore. Now, I just wake up sore for no reason. What is that about? Is that the 40s? Is that what? One day, because of Jesus, there will be no more tears. There will be no more COVID. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more whatever that's our blessed hope. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. Yes, pray for healing now, right? Awesome. Pray for it. Pray for it. Pray. We have chickens. What is going on? This is awesome. But understand the deeper, more precious picture of what Christ is doing in your life. And take joy. Take joy, take joy, take joy in serving Jesus. Behold him, see him, see all that he's done for you. And I'll tell you this, if you think it's just about this life, that's where we're going to struggle with joy. Because how many of you know, like sometimes we still, like since you've been a believer, you've still gone through some stuff. You've still gone through some garbage. You've still gone through some really hard times. And if you think your relationship with Jesus is about this life, then you're going to be sad. It's just going to be this sad cycle, self-denial, messing up, self-denial, messing up, falling into sin, and it's just experiencing all that the world experiences. But when our hope is in Jesus beyond this world, what a joy it is to serve him no matter what the circumstance. See, there's a real danger. The chickens are singing now. There's a real danger in missing the Christ. His brothers were missing his messiahship, his messianic status, the fact that he was the Christ. Let's continue to read in our text. John chapter 7, verse 10, it says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. 
The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some, some versions might say complaining about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay, so Jesus decides to go up to the feast after all. So he goes back to Judea, back towards Jerusalem, but not publicly. Not the way the unbelieving brothers, the ones who saw his miracles, the one who believed he had power, not the way that they wanted him to. He did it in secret. He did it in private. He hung back a bit, and he didn't go up publicly. The Jews were looking for him. They're muttering. They're complaining about him, and they're saying, where is he? Some people were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he's leading people astray. I was thinking about this this week. We, too, have some opinions about Jesus. Everybody does. The world does. Everyone has a confession about who Jesus is, a version of who Jesus is. And this is why I always say, like, our view of God, our view of Christ, who he is, what he's done, has to be so centered on Scripture. Otherwise, it gets off really, really quickly. And last week, celebrated baptisms. We had eight people from this congregation beautifully confess who Christ is. That they identify with him in his death and his resurrection and they will follow him forever. They also declared that they identify with his church and made that public confession, right? Their boats passing by. It was pretty awesome. Everyone has a confession of Christ. And the crowds at the feast also confessed who he was. Some people said he was a good man. Some people said he was leading people astray. And actually, if you continue on in John chapter 7, verse 20, I believe it is, some people looked at Jesus and said, you have a demon. Okay, so they said, you're out of your mind. Okay, so there's three of them right now. He's a good man. Some people say he's leading people astray. Some people say he's out of his mind. He's got a demon. Everyone has a confession of Christ. Everyone in this room confesses Christ some way or another. By your words, by what you say about him, what you sing about him, what you confess to your family, to your friends, the words that you say, but also in your living. You confess what you believe about Jesus in the living of your life. What you live for, what you prioritize, what you deprioritize, what you engage in, how you engage in it. Everyone confesses Christ. Now, what are you saying about him? When you look at those three options that you see here in the crowds around the temple, right? He's a good man. He's leading people astray. You got a demon. <laughs> um, one seems a little bit more right than the others, right? You're like, oh, I want to be that guy. I want to be the one who confesses that he is a good man. Well, in thinking it through this week, my study and coming through some couple commentaries, and I think there's one in this group that might be even a little bit more dangerous than the other two, and it might not be the one that you think. When I look at those three, he's a good man. He's leading people astray. He's got a demon. He's a good man. Might be the most dangerous one came across uh, a book that I, I read back in college uh, by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. A lot of you in this room have probably read that book. Um, 
great, great, great book on theology. Um, and and C.S. Lewis, of course, is an amazing writer. Um, here's a quote from him, and I think I actually have it on the screens for you. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, great, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. It's a pretty heavy quote, but it nails it. It nails it. He's a good man. He's leading people astray. Do you have a demon? <laughs> none of our acknowledgement, excuse me, none of our acknowledgments and confessions about Christ matter, whether in word, the things that we say about Jesus, or indeed the way that we profess our faith and the way that it plays out in our living. None of it matters unless we acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord. None of it matters. We can confess that he's a good man. We can confess that he's a good teacher. We can confess that he's this great uh, philosopher um, of this great philosophy of love and sacrifice, that he's this good role model, that he's this power powerful miracle worker like his brothers acknowledged. But unless we confess that he's the Son of God and Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter. And we must confess both of those things with our words and our living. Every one of us confesses something about Christ. What is your confession of Jesus today? Are you like the crowds and you just acknowledge him as a good teacher, as a good man, with a good philosophy? I'm just going to use Jesus as my example of living He's going to be my leader, my guide. I'm just, if I, what would Jesus do? I'll just do what Jesus does. It's so much bigger than that, so much deeper than that. Yes, Jesus lived an awesome life for us to emulate, but his awesome, sinless life you could never measure up to. You're going to fall short. He's the Son of God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He walked a sinless life that becomes our righteousness. He died a brutal death. The blood pours out on the cross, becomes our atonement, covers us, makes us whiter than snow. So when the God of heaven, the perfect, holy, righteous God of heaven looks down on you, a sinner, he no longer sees your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's done by Jesus, and that should fill us with joy. We must confess Jesus as Lord. As the band comes and we wrap up this morning, what are your words and what is your life 
say about Jesus. In this place today, I hope that your walk with God is deeper than just he's a good man and he's a good teacher. I hope your walk with God is bigger than just I'm going to try to be like Jesus. I hope your walk with God is one of joy and peace even in the struggles of this world because Jesus is your Lord. Because he is the son of God. Because he is the one who came down, put on flesh, dwelt among us to be our salvation. What is your confession of Christ this morning? Are you like the brothers who didn't see him fully for who he is? We've got good news, though, about the brothers. Because when you read further in the gospel, we're going to see his brothers show up in some other stories. It seems at some point that they actually saw him for who he is. It's my prayer today that you would as well. That you would acknowledge him as Lord. That you would repent of your sin. That you would turn and place your faith in him. And find salvation and joy. Salvation and joy. It is a joy to serve Jesus. Let's pray together and let's worship. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for these stories that we read about. This gospel story good news of Jesus. Good news of you, God, put on flesh and came down for us. God, if there is folks in this place today where their, their theology in this area has been deficient, maybe they've been caught up in religion, maybe they've been caught up in striving, maybe they've just been caught up in morality and doing the right things, there hasn't been a yielding of themselves to you, God, today in this place. Help them do that. To yield themselves, to surrender themselves to you completely and fully. To place your faith, to place their faith in you completely and fully. To turn their back on their sin. To follow after you. Because you and you alone are Lord. You and you alone are worthy of a life of followership. You and you alone are worthy of our praise and adoration, of the confessions of our mouth and the confessions of our life. You and you alone are worthy. So God, be glorified in this church. Be glorified in your people. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together before we have lunch.